Okay, another week of my podcast, Steven Sully Study. Um, next guest in front of me, entrepreneur, business person, someone that um, is a thoroughbred uh, entrepreneur, I would say, author, someone that has done public speaking countless times. And I think in the next couple of hours, you've got a few few speeches to do. Um, Gerald Ratner, thank you very much for your time. and looking forward to this episode. Thanks very much for asking me, Steve. So where, where should we begin? What, so the, the first question is, um, how would you define yourself, Gerald? Well, I'm a businessman that's been, uh, had my knocks, where I've been knocked down. I like to think that uh, I get up, not always instantly, a bit like you with a boxer, you know. Um, you will get knocked down, but the important thing is that you get up, and I've done that two or three times. I've realized that in business, as in life, that you're not going to sail through it without some setbacks. And uh, some people get knocked out, carry on with the boxing analogy, and they get counted out. And uh, I would never do that, even if I got knocked out today with my new businesses and my new work that I do. I would still try and fight back the whole time. One thing I've learned in boxing, even before boxing, when I was younger and there was the, the occasional altercation in the street and street fights, um, I, I started to realise who your real strong friends were because when an altercation started, and by the way, I'm not trying to promote this on the podcast, but I'm just telling you what happened. Yeah. You would go to places like Croydon, could be a bit edgy, and you would go to a club and then a few drinks later, there's going to be a fight. Yeah. And you would actually work out who was made of paper and who was made of granite in yeah. them scenarios and i believe that those fighters even if they weren't technically the best and yeah. couldn't really fire a punch but they were just willing to be there yeah. whilst the fight was, was was happening they're the people that have got this sort of almost alpha male type ego and they can transfer that into business yeah so i'm gonna ask you where has this kind of get up off the floor kind of do or die or kind of you know, grit and determination, instinct come from? Is it something you honed in on over, over, over many years or something that you're born with? Well, you're right. I mean, there is a comparison there with the aggression that you have to show uh, in the ring and you certainly need to be aggressive in business. It doesn't mean to say you have to sort of knock doors down or anything like that, but you have to be opportunistic. Um, you have to go for it 100% and... Uh, Nothing's going to stand in your way. How have I become like that? I think that I did very badly at school. I came last in my grammar school. In fact, I was expelled through uh, because I came 33rd out of 33, three years running. The headmaster warned me if I came last again, he would expel me. So I was expelled on the grounds of stupidity. So that was did me a bit of good, probably, uh, whether... I, it meant that I had to prove to my parents and everybody else that I can achieve things. Or it could have been because I wasn't um, that ambitious and aggressive till I saw that my friends, I had two friends, Charles Archie and Michael Green, who, um, while I was just sort of messing around, um, small time, they were suddenly got on the big stage, public companies, uh, and sort of conquering the world. So I who tend to sort of look up to people like that and try and copy them. So it could have been a combination of both. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, so obviously uh, I mentioned to you that I've actually met you quite only very, very briefly via a good friend of ours called Rob Moore, who thank, thanks to him, he helped me start my podcast and his companies helped me, you know, go into the property sector and I just think he's a great guy to have in, in your circle. He is. And um, over his weekend when he was promoting his book Money, that's when the opportunity was to listen to you. And yeah. I actually downloaded your, your book on uh, on Amazon and I listened to, to it called The Rise and Fall and The Rise Again of Gerald Ratner. And I've got to say, again, in, even in that title, it resonated with me because of the boxing, you know, yeah. The Rise and Fall. And there's so many athletes that, Look at Tiger Woods, you know, yeah. such a superstar. Then almost, I wouldn't say lost it all because yeah. he obviously had a lot of money, but 
went through the divorces, went through horrendous, you know, operations on his body because of the injuries. Mm. And then he's come back and, you know, I wouldn't say he's got to the same height, but yeah. he's, you know, he, he's come back around. And you can see that in so many different sports personalities and also big business people. So to kind of round off that title, The Rise, The Fall and The Rise Game for Joe Ratner, what is, what is that book all about? Because I've read it, but just for the, yeah. the, the benefit of the audience. Well, you know, there was so much rubbish talked about me, uh, which is inaccurate. And, you know, I don't want to sit here slagging off the papers because everybody does that. Uh, but it is a fact that uh, what you read in the papers is never accurate. And the times that I read about something that I happen to know about or somebody I know about, it's always completely wrong. They get everything wrong. So, you know, I wanted to put the record straight. And um, it's the rise and fall and rise again because it was... Uh, I built the business originally. We were very successful. We had 50% of the jewellery market. We acquired most of our competitors. In fact, one, our, one of our early acquisitions was H. Samuel when Ratner's had 150 stores uh, and H. Samuel had 450. But in the 80s, you can buy a business three times your size. We bought Ernest Jones. Uh, and every single one of those acquisitions was a fantastic success. And we even went to the States, which is the graveyard for retailers, and succeeded there. But to talk about our success uh, pre the speech is a bit like talking about the Titanic that had hundreds of miles of pleasurable sailing before, an uneventful sailing before it hit the iceberg. Because, you know, we really hit the iceberg uh, like nobody else it's regarded as uh, the worst corporate disaster of all time uh, so after building up this business with 125 million pounds profit in 1991 the day before the speech 125 million pound 30 years ago is like a billion pound profit today there's no retailer that makes that sort of amount just to put it into context of how success and it was also in a small industry jewelry it's not it's not like food or anything like that but it was phenomenally profitable we were taking more money per square foot than any other retailer in europe and we basically achieved that by being aggressive on marketing and competitive on price and that's the sadness of the speech and then being in a situation where you've got as low as you could go because you know this was like I was like public enemy number one because I was perceived as somebody who had made fun of uh, my customers, you know, whilst I was a multimillionaire and they, you know, couldn't pay their electricity bill and I was making fun. It was like it ticked every box for the tabloids. Um, but of course, that isn't what what happened. I didn't even mention my jewellery in that speech. I made a joke about a sherry decanter product which we acquired when we bought H. Samuel, uh, which I never liked and always said that jewellers shouldn't be selling gifts, they should be selling jewellery. Um, but anyway, it was a mistake and it could have easily been uh, misconstrued and the press were disingenuous and um, the result was that we're talking about it now 31 years later uh, because it destroyed everything um, and put me in a very difficult place. So the, the rise and fall and rise again is that uh, to come back from that low because not only was I my brand was damaged everyone was making fun of me I was subject of jokes uh, from comedians and everything on TV um, I also was wiped out financially by it so to come back from that um, as I say that if I could come back from that low low situation where everything was against you uh, then anybody can so that tells me that business and life is all about ups and downs um, and and everybody, you know, anybody can turn a massive negative into a positive, which is what I did. Definitely. Um, there's so many little parts to that I want to talk about, but I, I can't help thinking that with what you, you've done back then 31 years ago, but if you've done it in today's world with the age of social media, etc., I think it, I think the, the response would have been a bit different. Because I think we're in a culture now where 
sarcasm, you know, doing memes, you know, taking the piss a little bit uh, on, you know, social media is kind of a, a norm. Like every day someone like Boris Johnson will say something mm. and he's turned into a million memes overnight. Yeah. Or the, or a football match takes place and something happens and that's turned into a million memes. And it's quite comical and quite funny. And it kind of sort of dilutes whether it's kind of serious mm. or not. It, it gets watered down a bit. But back then, I think it was 1991 that when you made that mm. speech, wasn't it? Um, there was no such thing as podcasts. There was no such thing as social media. There was no such thing as really the internet so much. And it must have been anything that you said publicly and the media picked up on it. It was almost like a bit like gospel. Just for the records, because I know the story mm. and many people do, mm. but some of my audience won't know. So first of all, your, your, your brand Ratners, which was is Sigma, is it? It's now called Signet. They rebranded it. Yeah. So they they you owned H M Samuels, Ernest and Jones, mm. um, a series of others. Who else? Well, yeah, Ratner's the original one. So mm. we we owned uh, Leslie Davis, Ernest Jones, H Samuel, Watch of Switzerland, very upmarket, um, thousand shops in America, and uh, some handbag business called Salisbury's. Um, so it was about 1,200 shops in the UK and 1,000 shops in the US. And, and it was the, the world's largest jewellers. Wow. So I knew it was the uh, UK's and also Europe's. So mm. I wasn't um, so mm. aware. Maybe I was when I, when I read your book, but I forgot that it was as yeah. large as that. So the moment the speech happened, was it 500 million was wiped off your share value? Well, it wasn't the moment the speech happened. It took a while for people to realise the damage that it did. So um, it was about uh, two months, I think, before the share price went down by five hundred million pound. Well, can you do you know word for word the 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 the, the segment of that speech? That well, yeah, I, the I, yeah, it was two jokes. Uh, I think I would have got away with the first one, which is that we sell a pair of gold earrings for ninety nine pence, which we did, uh, which I said was the same price as a Marks and Spencer's prawn sandwich, but the sandwich would probably last longer than the earrings, which was quite funny. And uh, originally that was in my speech that I said that we sell a pair of earrings at the same price as Marks and Spencer's sandwich and the, the earrings would last a lot longer. But somebody in the audience uh, said, no, that your earrings would, uh, wouldn't last as long as a sandwich and everyone laughed. So I picked that up because it, everyone found that funny uh self-deprecating joke so I, I probably would have got away with that one but the one that killed me was that um i said that we sell a, a sherry decanter with uh six cut glasses on a silver tray um for 9.95 which was an incredible price for all of that even in those days um and I said, people ask me, how could I sell this for such a low price? Now, in the retail business, people are always giving reasons why they can sell things for such a low price. They buy in bulk, or they cut out the middleman, or they cut their margins, whatever. It's like a standard thing of ridiculous reasons why you, you're so cheap. I uh, said so the joke was that this was so cheap because it was crap, um, which was not particularly funny, um, but... <laughs> It was. Uh, it did get a few laughs when I said it in 1987. It was picked up by the Sun and the Financial Times, and in fact, Goldman Sachs even gave the Sherry Decanter set as a prize for their top salesman as a joke. Um, and it was well known that I said that, and nobody thought anything of it. Everybody took it the way it was uh, because I was colourful in terms, unusually colourful in terms of a CEO. Uh, and it was just everyone had a good laugh about it. So when I made the speech at the Albert, I was invited to make a speech at the Albert Hall but for the Institute of Directors for the annual conference. Somebody suggested that I put in a couple of jokes. I said, well, the joke that everyone finds funny is the prawn sandwich one and the sherry decanter. So I threw them in. But what I didn't realise is that um, this event is attended by 6,000 businessmen, but also by the press, uh, because you had... President Clerk of South Africa, Norman Lamont, the Chancellor. You had, you know, very high-profile people making it. So the press were there, and you had to give them an advance copy. And when the Daily Mirror uh, saw that 
that I was describing one of my products as crap, uh, their eyes lit up and they sent a reporter. And um, of course, the next day they said it. My, I've achieved all my success on selling crap, which actually in that same speech, I said that we sell high quality products sold by high quality staff. That was you can see it on um, on YouTube today. But, you know, I put in those jokes and the Daily Mirror loved that because we were in 1991 in a recession. People couldn't pay their bills and stuff. Uh, and it was the headlines of the mirror and the sun originally weren't going to run it but they saw the headline of the mirror and changed it overnight um and it was a it was a great story for tabloids because um they could blame this whole recession on you know the fat cat of which was me uh and it was sort of thing to really annoy people and um this resulted basically in people not coming into my shops. Now, you say that it might have been different today. I said it today. I don't agree with you on that because, I mean, apart from the fact, it really doesn't matter. I mean, you know, the Sun now has three million uh, readers. In those days, they had 17 million. Uh, and the Mirror had a not quite as much, but a hell of a lot. So really, that sort of media has just changed to the, Social media is media, and it's just people are taking their, their stories from a different source. So nothing's really changed in that way, uh, except that, uh, you know, people are doing a rat and making a mistake like P&O last week, and everybody does it, uh, and I get credited, for, uh, which is totally unfair because P&O, you know, I always had a great reputation to have a, which I still do with my staff. Uh, I would never behave like that. But anyway, I have to put up with it. Um, and, you know, even 31 years later, it was in a lot in the press uh, this week about me and that. Um, but the fact is that um, I shouldn't have said it. It was a mistake. Uh, I should have been more careful, but I'm not a careful person. I'm, I've never been careful. I'm, I tend to do things like, you know, fire from the hip a lot. And um, that and I paid a, a very, very high price for it. Yeah. The only reason why I say it is because I think with the age of social media, it's instantaneous and people yeah. can comment on it and then they can have a bit of a debate whether that was right or wrong. So I think the culture is a little bit different to where it was back then because something comes out on, on the Sun newspaper, 17 million subscribers, viewers, readers, mm. you can't kind of talk back to the Sun paper and say, oh, this is what I think he meant by yeah. that. There, there is no one kind of fueling it or having a, de a debate about it yeah. whereas on social media it is and I think it's kind of you expect you know certain people to trip up and then it's spoke about immediately and then people move on to the next thing whereas this probably gained a lot of momentum for a long time well I had a journalist not a journalist or an investor a shareholder on her way to see me in my office and she said she got a taxi to my office and the taxi driver was talking about nothing but Ratner. She didn't, he had no idea that she was going to see me. That was a ridiculous thing. And he was going on about Ratner and this sort of stuff. So, um, as I said, you know, they, you, we just have a different vehicle now for, uh, for conversation. In fact, you know, probably better to have a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody than all the conversations social media, but that's another thing. But I think that the, the thing, the reason is that I paid such a price and everybody else who's makes a faux pas, as you say, Boris Johnson, all those sort of people, uh, and it happens, you know, Ryanair, and they, they do it all the time. They never pay the price that I pay. And the reason that is, is because I was in the jewellery business. I'm in the jewellery business, and jewellery does not have a brand. Um, you're not selling brand. Watches are, but the jewellery doesn't have a brand to it. So the brand is the name above the shop. And it's a very... You're giving your your fiance an engagement ring with Ratners on the box. Um, it's a very special thing about love. So it's not like a tin of baked beans or, or or even a flight on an airline. You would still, if Ryanair says something that's really insulting, you'd still fly Ryanair because it's the cheapest or whatever. It wouldn't bother you. But you wouldn't go down on one knee with a box with Ratners on it. And then, then when they discovered I owed the other brands, the same thing happened to them. So I think particularly the fact I was in the jewellery business is the reason that uh, we suffered so much because of it. How, how much was you worth then at the time personally uh, before that happened? 
Well, I the shares were four pound twenty, and they went down to two p. Uh, I lived a very fantastic lifestyle with my own private jet. I had two jets. I had a helicopter, house in the country, lovely house in Mayfair, uh, fleet of cars, the whole works, and a huge shareholding. Um, within uh, you know space of that year, 1991, I made the speech in April. By the summer, I was skint. I was taking my kids out of school and selling my house. Uh, and I had a million pound tax bill as well uh, because of the some share options that I'd done, even though they were worthless. But when I'd converted them, you have to pay capital gains on them. And in those days, tax was 60%. So I was in minus, uh, a situation minus, um, which actually wasn't the worst thing um, that I'd lost all my money. The worst thing was that I'd lost my business and I lost... I employed more people than the Royal Navy, 27,000, and a lot of them lost their job. And a lot of young people had come to me and said I'd given them a great chance because uh, we were expanding such a thing. And that was my biggest regret, that we'd all, we had this fantastic morale in the business and camaraderie and all that was gone. And uh, it wasn't the money. It was the humiliation and the fact that my colleagues had lost their job. And I, and I was no longer... Nobody had died or anything, but it was as bad as it could be in terms of uh, my personal standing. I even remember going to a group of people. In the old days, people used to surround me and come up and ask me questions. I went to a group of people and they all just dispersed, walked away, you know, because I was like a street accident then. So, um, so it was a massive shift. I was I was going to come on to this next point where I, I've interviewed quite a lot of athletes, including yeah. footballers or people that play in team sports, rugby players, etc. Yeah. But mostly it seems to be soccer, football players that get criticised the most when they miss a tackle, they cause a penalty, they miss a penalty, they miss an open goal mm. or whatever else. And then they are... They are... Bombarded, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of ridiculed on social media, mm. in the media and you know, a fan suddenly turns into an enemy, almost like a, a you know, click of a button. And they go out into the real world and people saying stuff under their breath or, you know, they're, they're saying stuff to them uh, or to their wife and it can cause them to get really angry and then there could be an mm. altercation and stuff. Was that a bit like for you? Like going into going into society after all this happened and you mm. go into a bar, restaurant or some, somewhere in a public area go, oh, that's that guy, you know, Joel mm. Retna, and, and mm. they would come over to you and say stuff, say, say stuff that would kind of wind you up. Well, yeah, sometimes to this day, I'm sitting in a restaurant, you mentioned the Heinz Head, and I was sitting actually in the Crown, which is the other one opposite. In Bray. In Bray, and I'm listening to a conversation with it. I only listened to because I heard my name being said. And this was quite recently, about somebody doing a Ratna or something like that. <clears throat> so... Uh, it, it, nowadays, you know, it didn't bother me like it, it did at the time. But it was, uh, I was just totally shocked. that From one minute I was retail of the year, lauded by everybody. And then the next minute you can go from hero to zero in such a short time. Um, and, you know, I went through a very difficult time. I, I mean, there's no question about this. For seven years after I lost my job, I I basically uh, didn't get out of bed very much. I was watching Countdown in the afternoon, you know, as uh, saying the speech. Uh, sometimes you need somebody to give you a kick up the arse to say to you, you can't carry on like this, which is in my case, my wife. I was, I was uh, about to come on to that because I remember hearing this, this, this talk uh, when you was with Rob and you said that your wife basically got you got you back on your feet. Um, yeah. Would you say at that time, I know it's not, it wasn't probably much of a culture back then, but but now it's highlighted a lot, mental health, yeah. you know, depression, anxiety, being fearful of, you know, what the future holds for you. Mm. Would you say you were, you were depressed back then? Oh, I definitely is depressed. I was seriously depressed. And uh, often, you know, we talk about mental health a lot now. Um, some people just, you know, ill and there's no reason why they would... Uh, have anxiety and stress uh, when you look at their lives. You, you can't understand it. They've got plenty of money and they're good looking and 
person, but they still suffer from. So that's one thing. But in my case, I suffered from uh, depression uh, because of the fact, because of circumstances. It was brought it because I was a perfectly happy person before the speech. Uh, but I was lying in bed wondering, you know, with debt, credit card bills. Uh, and I was seriously found it difficult to carry on. And uh, I went to a psychiatrist who prescribed me uh, Prozac, Siroxac, something like that, which was the worst thing for me. It, didn't, it might, might work for a lot of people, it didn't work for me because just when I had to get back on my feet, it was taking away a lot of feeling. You became like a bit of a zombie, sort of, in my case. I don't know about other people. It just took away the will to... You didn't feel as bad as depressed, but you didn't then again feel that you needed to do anything to um, get out of that situation. So it was only when I started cycling uh, and I gave up those pills uh, that I began to think clearly and get back on my feet. Um, and that's why, you know, in my talks that I do, uh, I talk about the benefit of exercise. I know everybody does, but I do feel that that is the solution because I've got people close to me that suffer from it. And the exercise, it's not, it's only a short-term fix. It doesn't solve it in the long term. But it's a great short-term fix. And you suddenly feel less anxious uh, if you cycle 25 miles, if you go up a steep hill. Um, it goes away completely and you need a break from it. So, you know, I'm a great advocate of uh, exercise. And that's why I uh, went into that bit, that industry. Yeah, I, I definitely support that. Um, obviously, being a boxer myself yeah. and, and competing in, in, in different things, squash, football, yeah. etc. over the years, I definitely believe that we all feel anxiety, we all feel fear, we all feel uncertain from time to time. But what can eradicate that short term and also longer term if you mm. keep it up mm. and you learn to control your mind and emotions mm. is definitely, definitely, definitely sport and training, definitely. Yeah. Boxing is a great form of exercise. It's a, it's a fantastic, uh, you know, the more uh, brutal in a way the exercise is, the better it is, you know. Although I go for a nice walk in the afternoons, so I've added that to my repertoire. But there's nothing like going up a very, very steep hill at speed because when you get to it, you haven't got a trouble in the world. And also... Um, you get your best ideas when you're exercising. You don't get your best ideas when you're sitting in a boardroom surrounded by colleagues trying to come up with ideas uh, on the spot or answering questions. You get your best ideas when your head's clear and you're thinking, how can I solve this problem? Funny you should say that because even now, I've always known that, but even now you kind of sometimes forget mm. when you're in the in, in day-to-day life and in, in business. Mm. This podcast studio is actually my office as well, so my computer's here and mm. I'm on Zooms and, you know, taking calls, etc. And every so often, especially when it's nice, I go outside, go and get a double espresso mm. and I walk around Soho Gardens and I walk just have a walk around. And after that half an hour walk after the coffee, I come back and I'm just like, bang, I'm, it's like Absolutely. I've got a, a next kind of lease Absolutely. of life. Absolutely. It's so, I so important. I concur with that completely. Um... Often, you know, when I got a problem, I said, well, hold on, I'll go for a walk. And people said, well, don't go, go for a walk. We've got this crisis. We've got to deal with it. You know, it's the last thing you have to do. I go for a walk and I come back and I've solved it. Yeah. Um, because you cannot perform under pressure. When, let's say you um, walk into a room and you haven't seen somebody for a while and you can't remember their name and they've come face to face with you and they've said, hello, Gerald, and you have to say, hello, Bill, or whatever, and you can't for the life of them remember their name because you're under pressure to produce that name that second. But if you were walking around the block, it would come to you straight away that it's Bill. So it's like that with any problem. Uh, the worst thing you do is put somebody under pressure to try and... Uh, it was a bit like when I walked in there and I said, I've met you before and you said, have you? And yeah, yeah. had that same sort of scenario. Yeah, no, I'm a disaster with that. <laughs> I'm a disaster with people. And you know something, it's a great shame because the greatest compliment that you can pay somebody is to remember their name uh, and say, hello, Mr. Davis, nice to see you. They, they, they think, oh, great, he remembers me completely. That's all you have to do. Mm. Um, but I, unfortunately, get people's names wrong, and uh, so I don't attempt to remember their names. But, 
There you go. You know, when you was at your height as a, as a business person, mm. um, I, I, I do enjoy money. I think, uh, yeah. I think if you're in business, I think there's a, a factor why you've got into business. I think money um, gives you options mm-hmm. and there's a big debate whether money makes you happy or not. I think what it does give you is options and I think having more options than, than, than not probably leads to some kind of form of happiness. I think you can give more money away if you've got more money and help more people. Your friends, family can have a better lifestyle and who wouldn't want that? So I'm interested in talking about money and also about, you know, the things that money can buy you, the toys and stuff, because their things still today on my vision board Mm. and on my goals list, I still want. I know the only way I'm going to get that is if I'm working really hard, giving value to my customers and clients and, and, and perseverance. And without setting them goals, there's nothing that you you can't hit a target that you haven't set almost. So you said about two private jets. I mean, I didn't even mm. know that. I mean, private jets is, it, it's just a great thing to get on a private jet, mm. let alone own two. And you said the fleet of cars. So if you could be a bit more specific, what type of classes do you used to, used to own? Everything. Rolls Royce, Bentleys, Porsches. Um, never had a Ferrari. That was a bit too much to handle. Uh, Jeeps. I don't know everything. I had this huge garage. It was like a you'd go into it and think it was a multi-story car park. It was full with my. Is cars. this where you used to live in Bray? No, this was. I lived in Bray on the river, uh, but this was my house in Mayfair. I had a garage, which I incidentally I bought a garage to house the cars because obviously the garage in my house wasn't big enough. But you're talking to somebody who had all of that, and then lost everything and didn't have a penny and then made a certain amount of money back, nothing like the money that I had with my original business. So A, B, and C. Out of those three, you'd think that A was the best, was the time that I'd be the most happy, and B would be the time I'd be the most miserable, and C would be somewhere in between. But in fact, yes, B was the time I was most miserable when I had nothing and I had debt, there's no question about that, and it's very frightening to have debt that you can't pay back. But it wasn't A that was the most happiest. It was C, uh, because when I had all of those things, I didn't really appreciate them, whether I was too young or it was too much, or I was too focused on making profit in the business, so I couldn't. I wasn't thinking about leisure activities, great holidays and all that sort of stuff. I just wanted to be at work. Uh, so the, all the trappings that I got, I didn't enjoy particularly much. Um, but when I lost it all and then made back quite a bit, a few million or whatever, then it, that money I really appreciated. And when I went on holiday, because I hadn't been on holiday for seven years, um, I really, really, really appreciated that. And I still do to this day. If I buy something today, let's say in the olden days, I might buy a nice camera. I just throw it in a bit in the drawer and never use it. I just had to buy the most expensive. Now, if I buy a camera, I'll, re- I'll start taking pictures. I'll really use it. So the money now that I, I really. So I, d- I advise people then, you know, when they have got a lot of money and they're top of their game to try and smell the roses, appreciate it and uh, live in the moment. Live in the moment because, uh, you know, you've achieved a lot and you should in- reward yourself and enjoy enjoy that. But I didn't. Private jets, I mean, look, mm. if I, I've got um, friends of mine, I mean, I used to have, have a few cars myself and it's almost like you feel like you've made it when you've got two cars rather yeah. than just the one car and they're both really fancy cars yeah. or you might have three cars and might not have a nice home. But to have a fleet of cars and then to have not one private jet but about two private jets, I mean, that's, that's magical. I mean, what... Why did you get the private jet and why did you get two private jets? Well, I got a big plane in America. Um, what was it? I forgotten what it was called. Learjet, I think it was. I sat about 12 people. Uh, but in America, if you had a thousand shops, um, it was a business tool that you had to get. You know, you had to fly to Florida, you had to fly to Seattle. And it says you could know where you could get around the shops by car. So it was uh, it was very useful for me and my colleagues to do that to go around in in, in the shops in America. Uh, if we you know if you're running a big business, I think most people who had over a thousand shops had a plane. Uh, in the UK, I had a helicopter um, because that was sort of uh, 
also to get round. That turned out to be a ridiculous mistake because um, you couldn't land the helicopter near the shops anyway. I was the managers used to joke that they were going to paint an H on the top of the shop because when they heard I got a helicopter, because I said to them, I'm just now bought a helicopter and I could arrive at any time. And that was, I thought that was a good thing because it's no point in telling a manager you're coming next Tuesday afternoon, he'll get everything perfect. You want to see the shop as the public see it at any time, to ca- not to catch him out, but to see what's wrong and to put it right. There's no point in going there when everything, they, you know, got it all ready for you that that's not how it is uh, 365 days a year so the helicopter was for that purpose um but yeah i was the other plane was just basically um it was just a question of at that time because i was making so much money and the company was making so much money you know i'd come from a loss of 34000 pounds to a profit of 125 million pounds in 7 years uh, we were the highest performing share on the stock market for two years running. Um, we were making so much money. I was just buying things, uh, spending a lot of money uh, because I thought I should. Um, but that, you know, a lot of people that I see today that are very, very wealthy are much more careful with their cash. They don't throw it around. Uh, I'm just that type of person. Not only do I spend, did I spend a lot of money personally, but I spend a lot of money in the company as well. Because um, I believe that um, by spending a lot of money in the company, I was going to hit my competitors investing more. And it's true to a certain degree. You look at companies like British Home Stores and Debenhams, they went bust because they were starved of cash. If you looked at those stores, particularly BHS, they looked like they did in the 80s and the 90s. Nobody had spent money on them. Um, in business, you have to continually invest, improve, make it, you know, just just throw cash at something to make it better than your competitors. Um, you can't, and, and they didn't, they were, they were starved of cash. They were asset stripped and that's why they went bust. So we did the opposite. We spent and spent. The trouble is I carried on a bit like that with my private life. It was just the way I was. I'm not like that anymore now. I travel, you know, I used to drive around, be driven around London. Like I'd come to a meeting like this in my Bentley, my chauffeur-driven Bentley. Uh, today I've come on the underground. Uh, and, you know, so I prefer going on the underground. It's a lot quicker and I don't have to put on this act of, you know, having this fabulous car and a driver and all that sort of stuff. And Was it all about profile before and maybe ego? Well, it's just something that, because everybody did it, who made a lot of money, you had all these trappings, you had your suit made in Savile Row and all that. You just did it. You felt, well, I'm no, I'm the sort of person who uh, has made a lot of money and should be doing these sort of things. But what I've learned in life now is that you don't have to follow the crowd. You can do what suits you. Now, because somebody said you've got to go and see this film, it's the best film ever, you know, new James Bond or whatever, <clears throat> Uh, in the old days, I said, "Oh, I have to do, be. Do, I have to go and see that film. Otherwise, I'll be left out." Oh, it's part of the thing. Now I just say, "No, I don't want to see that film. It doesn't suit me. I don't have to read that book. You know, I do. What I, I'd rather do what I like." Well, do, in um, in, uh, mm. in seven years, you got your brand uh, turned over well over a hundred million in, for pro, uh, in profit, right? Yeah. Um, which is remarkable. Um, you're selling a product or products. Obviously, got your brand. Obviously, the given the given is hard work, you know, mm. your systems, etc. But what is the real key to that? Like, you know, for example, this business we sell predominantly mm. Richard Hamilton artworks, the Godfather street art. You know, we're we're in around the twelve million pound mark last year for turnover. I mean, the the product in comparison to what you were selling at the time. I mean, a typical entry point original is. 35 40,000 pounds and they go up to about 1.5 million pounds. Oh, that's a shame because I have my eye on one of those. I didn't realize they're that expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, a guy who's, who's made as much money as you over the years, I'm pretty sure we could work out work out <laughs> a deal for you. But um, the uh, so we could tell, like, for example, I mentioned to you this, yeah. this is how happening right now, um, you know, for, for over a million pounds. And it doesn't take too many of them to mm. start, you know, ma- making things really, really good. 
But how would you go to the next level, you know, from 12 million to 24 million and so mm. on? How did you get to a hundred of million pound profit in a year? What is the real secret to that? Well, as I was saying, you need uh, money. One of the advantages we had over the uh, our competitors is that we had money on tap because we're a public company. So we, I realized um, it was originally a family business and my a father's uncle who would never tap the shareholders for anything. So what's the point of being a public company? As soon as I took over, I tapped the shareholders every minute because you can just, I realized you need cash uh, and to go to the next level. Uh, and a lot of people don't want to dilute their holdings because they feel that, uh, you know, they'll get they'll lose their job and they want to keep 100%. I'd rather build a huge business uh, and have less of a shareholding than a big shareholding and a small one. Uh, so I continually uh, did acquisitions, even though it meant that my shareholding as a percentage went down, but it, in terms of value, it always went up because of the, uh, the deals were good. So I do believe that somebody in your situation with a £12 million turnover, to get to the next level um, would need to do acquisition i always feel acquisitions are a much better way to expand than organic um, because you're taking out a competitor in my case uh, i'd rather buy another jewelers uh, in a town let's say like a town like brighton that has eight jewelers why have a ninth jeweler where you share it out take out one of the other jewelers you don't have to put in a shop front it's all there you don't have to take on staff it's all there you even get some of their business so to me, it's a no-brainer, acquisition over organic, but it does involve uh, injection of cash. It in involves investors. I don't like debt, so I would always go down the investor route. Um, but I'm a great advocate of uh, acquisitions to expand. And if you want to stay at 12 million, that's fine. You can have a nice life. But if you want to get to 24 million and 48 million, you would have to acquire uh, businesses to do that. I mean, I know somebody in the catering business. She doesn't know the first thing about cooking. She never will cook. But she she bought about seven or eight different catering businesses and then flogged the whole lot off, you know. Um, so that's the route to uh, becoming big um, It is to take out. And it's a lot easier to take out a competitor than you think because people like the idea of deals they're not interested in oh well i'm building my profit 10 percent a year they're not interested in investing in a business that's boring like that what they see is somebody who does who's acquisitive uh there's possibilities here of uh, really making a lot of money very quickly mm. sound advice um was it always a given gerald that you were going to become a business person a businessman well i so I did nothing in school. I wasn't interested in school. Uh, I was only interested in my father who had about six shops, working in those shops. Uh, I was always interested in business and talk, and he used to take me round on the shops, six shops on the Friday uh, during my school holidays. He was great like that and involved me in it. Uh, and I always was just, always wanted to do that. And when I was uh, 15, he said, well, you've just wasted time at school. You're not going to learn anything um, now. You might as well just go in the business what you want to do. And I walked, I worked in the shop in Wood Green um, behind the counter, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I did that for many years. And I worked in all different sides of the business and really learned it uh, from the other people. I learned it from the buyers who taught me, because I was, you know, they used to teach me everything. And I, I'm very good at listening, at learning from other people. Because when I was playing snooker with Charles Soch and Michael Green, I picked up a hell of a lot of tips from them. Uh, I'm a great listener. I'm not particularly creative or innovative. I'm very good at copying. Uh, but if you surround yourself with very successful people or people, actually, I was actually learnt a lot listening to people who are idiots as well, because you'd avoid doing exactly that. You could see exactly their philosophy and realize it's completely wrong. So you work out the route to go. I want to go that route because that person is successful, not that route. 
And that's what I did. And um, yeah, I think it is in my blood because I was taken down to Petticoat Lane as a kid uh, by my father. And <clears throat> I was fascinated by all the stalls and how they pitch for business. And it was a very simple trick uh, that the people that shouted the loudest got the most crowds. And you have to shout in retail, you have to shout from the rooftops, obviously not out of your voice, but with your posters and sandwich board and advertising and marketing and stuff like that. You can't be a wallflower in business. How, how important is, I mean, you kind of answered it, but like PR and what type of PR strategies, stunts, things did you do in order to get noticed? Well, we were always coming up with uh, ideas to try and promote ourselves. And I didn't want to ever advertise because as they say, you know, you spend uh, 50, only 50% of all advertising works. So you don't know which 50%. So I think that advertising is just a waste. Of, you spend so much money. Uh, you go to advertising agents and then you look at the figures and they haven't changed at all. So I've always tried to promote uh, the businesses that I've been in by doing it without spending any money. And there are ways of doing that. And uh, with the Ratners, uh, and the reason that I came unstuck at the Albert Hall that day is because I was very, very high profile. I was always in the press. If I was an unknown person, then nobody would know me to the, that day. But it was they made a big thing about me because I was well known. Um, so I, you know, I was always told that if I caught the press, you know, that build me up to knock me down. They were right. But yeah, so the fact that I was Gerald Ratner meant that the Ratner stores at the time were outperforming uh, a lot, even H. Samuel and a lot of those because of the Ratner brand. Mm. Um, so people forget that. Um, and then when I had, uh, when I came back into the jewellery business in 2003 on, online, I would always come up with schemes where I would get uh, free publicity. And when I launched the uh, online business, I thought, how can I get a, bit of a PR stunt out of this? Uh, I know people are only interested in my speech. So I phoned, I emailed the um, Institute of Directors. I said, why don't you have me back at the Albert Hall? Uh, so I went back to the Albert Hall and uh, that was carried by the six o'clock news. And of course, it came across that I was back there to launch a new business. So uh, I turned that huge negative into a positive there. Um, but I would never spend money on advertising. I mean, one stunt that we did at um, Wimbledon with our Gerald Online online business was we knew that the weather forecast, it was going to, the, the, this is before they had the roof, that it was going to rain at some point um, later in the afternoon. So we gave out free umbrellas um, with our logo on them, just gave them out, everybody takes something, it's free. And then on Centre Court, when the rain came down, suddenly you saw all these uh, umbrellas opening up with Gerald Online on it, and that cost us the price of a, and, um, you know, a few hundred quid. Uh, and, we got, and Wimbledon went mad. Which was made it Never. even better to just annoy them. Never. Yeah. I do want to move on to like kind of what you're doing now, everything yeah. else. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about the, yeah. the heights. Um, again, I've interviewed a lot of athletes yeah. and I think a lot of athletes do fall, fall into the, the trappings of yeah. being a success. And sometimes what comes with that is the females throwing themselves at you, the drugs, the drinking. Unfortunately, um, I didn't get a lot of females throwing themselves at me. <laughs> I was going to ask, so was there, was there any of that sort of lifestyle, drink, drugs, uh, rock and roll, you know, doing crazy stuff? Obviously, the female throwing herself at you, anything mm. like that in your heights? No, I was very uh, boring like that. Um, I was just obsessed. I, I have, as I was saying to you before we went on air, that I pretend, I have obsessions whether it's cycling, whether it's art, or whether it's business, whether even football at one stage, I get put everything into it. And when I was building the Ratners group, I wasn't interested in anything but that. And that's why my first marriage probably fell apart, because when I came home um, and sat by the dinner table, after the excitement of the office with all this going on, it was I was just not interested you know which is a terrible shame because you should have a balance in life but that's me that's the way i am so you asked me about sex rock and roll and drugs um, no i would never i would never take drugs anyway because i'm the sort of person that if i took drugs i'd be hooked for life 
on it. So I'm very careful. I've never taken any anything like that, or uh, you know, I, I I just wanted to be successful. Yeah. Okay. Um, part of being success as well, earning a lot of money, becoming a high profile person, is you attract other high profile people. And Rob Moore's company has said many times, which I still use this quote today, yeah. which is. Your net worth is determined by your network sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I do believe there's a lot of truth in that. So you mentioned people like Charles Saatchi, mm. who, by the way, you know, is a legend. We've done a show mm. at the Saatchi Gallery in 2020. It was an absolute hit for Richard Hamilton. Love to be connected to him one day, so maybe you can make that happen. Well, he's not the most sociable person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure he'll love us once he meets us. Yeah, um, sure. And then there must be loads of other celebrity, high-profile people that you know. And if you wouldn't mind sharing, I mean, who is that in your network? Well, I don't really want to go name drop like that. I can't think of anything worse than being a name dropper. Um, but yeah. Um, you must have been connected to like MPs, governments, because being a, you know, yeah. one of the reasons why I say this is because Charles, uh, Charlie Mullins, who just sold yeah. Piblico Plumbers, he was here yesterday doing a podcast. And the amount of people that he's connected to is unbelievable. And he didn't mind just sharing everything. He was just a ball yeah. of energy, which I, you know, which, which was quite yeah, cool. Yeah, but I'm not like Charlie Mullins. I, 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 know, I, I know, I know, I know. I, I, do, I wouldn't do that. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I. I, when I was at my peak, I would go to 10 Downing Street and stuff like that with Margaret Thatcher, and I was very great uh, admirer of her, and I felt great that I could go there and go to Buckingham Palace and places like that. But obviously, when I lost everything, uh, I didn't get those invites anymore. But I did do Celebrity Apprentice. Uh, I met um, some very interesting people on my team, which was like Jonathan Ross and yeah. Alan Khan, Got One and Jack Doom, people like that. It was nice meeting all of those sort of people. Um, so, yeah, uh, but I'm not, uh, I don't mix in uh, those sort of circles particularly. Yeah. There is a reason why I asked you this question also, Charlie's, because I, I'm a firm believer of that quote, but also they must, you know, when you start meeting these high-profile people or important people, certainly in your field, they can open up doors. And you must have had a lot of good opportunities off the back end of knowing very, very influential people. Well, as far as I'm concerned, um, when I did the... Uh, the most important thing is to get your business right uh, and to get the customer through the door. Um, that is primarily what's going to make you successful and not successful and in my situation um when i started doing acquisitions i appointed uh through my brother-in-law um he introduced me to morgan grenfell who at the time were the top merchant bank and one of my directors said don't go to morgan grenfell they charge an absolute fortune uh, merchant bank you know it's like a taxi with a meter running as soon as you go in and he was so against it but he was totally wrong because if you want to be uh, if you want the introductions and the deals you have to be part of the club so you have to have blue-blooded stockbrokers top banks uh, top lawyers and that way um, that introduced me to a lot of businesses which I could buy because I was associated with the top companies and there's no point in doing that on the cheap um it is a city of london is a club and you have to pay through the nose to be part of it but it's worth it because that way you will get introductions and you'll get somewhere and to try and do it with some backstreet lawyer or do it on the cheap uh you're going to be laughed at you have to you have to have a serious status of having those names behind you so I had the Casino, which is the Queen's stockbroker. Um, I had the, the Theodore Goddard, which was one of the top lawyers at the time, uh, and, and Morgan Grenfell, who was a top merchant bank. I would only be associated with the best established companies, even though they were an arm and a leg, but it was well worth it. Sure. So uh, so bouncing back, you know, Joel Ratner uh, 2.0, um, what have you done since, you know, obviously doing that, that speech, mm. everything coming down, then you're back on the rise? Well, I didn't do a lot for seven years. I'd given up and believed everything that was said about me in the publicity. But as I said before, uh, the one thing that was uh, making me 
a little bit happier was exercise and cycling 25 miles a day, which I still do to this day. Good man. And that's one of the advantages of uh, making that speech is that I wouldn't, running a public company, I wouldn't have time to do 25 miles a day cycling. But it's the best thing I ever did. So I felt I could see the benefits in 1997 of health and fitness. And I wanted to open a health club, even though I didn't have any money. Uh, so I basically... Uh, put a site that I found in solicitors' hands and sort of blagged everybody that I'd bought it and started selling membership, even though I didn't own it. And if I hadn't sold any membership, I wouldn't have bought it. But I did. I sold about 800 uh, memberships that gave me the direct debits. That enabled me to get the finance because anyone who was invested knew that it was going to be successful because I already had the members signed up. I ended up getting two and a half thousand members and selling it uh, for four million pounds uh, two and a half years later. And that was something that I hadn't put any money into because I was completely skinned. Um, I then, so it was a business I loved and it got me back on my feet. And it was a wonderful feeling getting that cash after being skint for seven years and going through what I'd been through because, you know, it was an ego problem as well. I'd gone a bit off the rails and... Uh, I then put in two million quid of that money to launch an online jewellers at the turn of the century. So we did extremely well with that because we were in at the ground floor when everyone didn't want to know about the internet. Uh, we were one of the first people selling jewellery on the internet. We did sales of 25 million pounds. Um, and I then went back to the uh, Albert Hall to, to promote that business because I knew that the only way I could do it without spending a lot of money on advertising was to get free publicity. As the media had cost me £500 million, I thought I'd better get some of that back from them. And I did. I got a lot of free publicity by going back to the Albert Hall. And then somebody in the audience was from Ab to Travel. And they said, this is a great story. Um, we'd like uh, you to come to our annual conference and talk uh, because we don't feel that our members are aggressive enough to, towards business. So I did that and then uh, I was picked up by an agent um, who said that, you know, he could pay me £5,000 a time to do these after-dinner talks. And at one stage I was doing like three a day. It was just unbelievable. And it was in a way, it was one of the best businesses I've ever been in because of the fact it was 100% profit. There was no... That, there was no risk. I just went along. And did but the main thing was that I absolutely loved it. And this was Gerald Ratner, who was, who was um, public enemy number one, was suddenly doing these speeches all over the world, uh, traveling these wonderful places and all over Britain and getting, a, and getting the warmest, rapturous reception, laughter. Because, you know, I, did, I, I like to use humor. That's how I got into trouble in the first place. And it was... Um, Everybody who get you know needs a little bit of an arm around them and a bit of um, it was just uh, it was just a great feeling to do the speeches. It still is this day, as I say, I'm doing one in a few hours' time. I've done about three or four this week, and I just love doing talks about my story. Um, it's cathartic to a certain degree to to uh, to say to myself, well. I didn't really do anything wrong. I made a mistake like we all do and I benefited from it. And you ever meet somebody who's sailed through life and has not messed up. I was going to use a swear word there. Uh, I'll meet you can. <laughs> <laughs> it's somebody who hasn't, you know, messed up. They, they lack a certain amount of empathy and um, sympathy to be part of the human race, you have to have suffered somewhat. And I think I've benefited from that because I can now deal with the problems that I have. Uh, business is difficult, but if you accept that, it's no longer that difficult. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's wide reports when I've tried to see how much your net worth is now because yeah. it comes up, Gerald Ratner, and then a couple, <laughs> couple of dancers' net worth. And obviously there was the former net worth and now, and it is a bit wide. There's di different reports that I've read. I mean, I've saw one up to about $18 million. Um, how close to that figure is that? $18 million? Uh, it's quite a long way off, unfortunately. Um, 
I'd, you know, I, I was worth a lot more than that at one stage, but I'm not worth the, that, that today. But to be honest with you, I'm not You'll bothered. Have, yeah. I'm yeah. very, I don't want to sound too cheesy about this, but I've got enough money to have a great lifestyle. I've got four kids who are my greatest achievement and uh, I can do anything that I want now. I'm not answerable as running a public company to produce profits for anybody. I'm my own boss. I can do what I like. I love meeting people like yourself, doing events, doing a lot of mentoring, helping other people. And I could make more money, probably, but I'm doing the things that I want to do. I mean, I've got a decorator. Who's, I've just moved house and he's come in and uh, he could, at the moment, it's booming, you know, but he doesn't want to do loads and loads of stuff. He wants to do what he wants to have Fridays off and do what he wants to do. And that's what I do now. I want to have my time off, which I really enjoy, go for walks. Unfortunately, I lost my dog who I adored, who was 13. Uh, oh yeah, and people think it was just a dog, but it was like the worst things ever happened no, it's to like me. A, like a child, like a yeah. family member. He, and he was amazing because he could uh, understand everything. We understood each other and, uh, you know, dogs do die and that is a sadness, which was probably why I wouldn't have another one. I could never replace him. He was very special to me for the last 13 years and I spent a lot of time with him, um, which I would rather spend time with him than sort of, nowadays and sort of doing some other business you know so i do what i want to do in life now today and um, uh, plan for the future then gerald i know you're obviously doing talks and you yeah. have got businesses and yes. you spend time with the family and stuff yes. um, but is there any kind of real big ambitions for anything else over the next five years ten years well i was you know i've got sort of the online business which is now less online it's more wholesale supplying stuff and i've got partners in india so they want to set up that sort of business in India, which is going to be a huge challenge. Um, but I like going to India. I like people out there. Um, and it's, a, it's something that is completely different for me. And I think that one of the things that I look back on, if I hadn't made the speech, I'd be still sitting in the same office in Mayfair with the same planes and helicopters, the same shops, same people around me doing exactly the same thing for 50 years. And I've learned now that, as I did my book, Reinvent Yourself, that there's a lot to be said for um, not doing exactly the same thing for years and years and being in that same situation and experiencing a totally different businesses, open doors to meeting people and, you know, all the different businesses that I've been in, whether it's health club or whether it's speaking or whether it's online or whether it's India, has opened up more interesting doors than just doing what I was always doing. You know, that's what it's exciting. Um, starting a new business, you know, building something from scratch is a great feeling. And uh, I remember sitting in the porter cabin um, in Henley when I was building the uh, the health club and, my friend Michael Green came round and uh, I said, well, this is not exactly Mayfair, like my office that you used to come round to. I'm in a porter cabin here, something. He says, yeah, but you're building something. You're creating something from scratch. And that's something that is better than anything because um, it wasn't there before and you've created it. Um, so it didn't really matter if you're in a porter cabin. And I felt happier actually in that porter cabin than I did in this huge office in Mayfair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you've been a fantastic guest. Um, where can people find you if uh, you want them to follow your journey? Well, I'm on Twitter. I get a lot of abuse on that. I'm on LinkedIn, where I get a lot of nice things, as I do on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I, If they want my email or anything like that, or they only need to go on to LinkedIn. It's all there. Contact me, offer me a speech <laughs> as a plug, uh, or if they want some mentoring. Um, so I'm very, very easily accessible. Um, go to my website, whatever. And uh, I get a lot of people that I don't know that just suddenly contact me out of the blue and I build up a relationship with them, um, with mentoring or whatever, you know. Good. I'll ask you one more question. Sure. So when I first started my first company, uh, when I was 24 years of age, mm. I come up with a mantra because predominantly the company was a sales company. Mm. We used to promote um, investment opportunities. And most of the people on that sales floor were men. 
Uh, there was a few females, but I had about 50, 60 people in there, mm. and most of them, I say, were, were, were men. So I come up with a bit of a mantra to keep their mind focused and for them to feel pumped and wanting more out of the day. Because the facts are, Gerald, the definition of a sale is the transfer of your enthusiasm. If you're enthusiastic about you, your brand, your market, your product, you're more likely to convert someone into a yes and therefore a sale. So the mantra goes like this. Be happy, never content. Be happy, never content. I've got my own version of what it means to me. But Gerald right now, if I were to say to you, be happy, never content, Mm. what does that mean to you? Well, I think you're right. I think that you're only good at something if you love it, if your job. If you hate your job, you're not going to be good at it. So I am happy doing what I'm doing. I know I don't look happy. That's my face. But I am much happier these days. Um, But I'm never content about it because that would then lead me into a situation where I wouldn't try um, to get business. And I love selling. We're always selling, whatever business. You're in a different business to me, but we're both selling. We're selling now. Um, it's inevitable that, you know, selling is tough. Even getting speeches and stuff like that or selling jewellery is not easy. You get people who think, well, they say they're going to do it and they don't do it and that sort of stuff. And often when I learned from my American business that people tend to say no four times before they say yes so you've got to keep on trying you've got to keep on selling and it's great when you pull it off so um yeah i i think selling is probably the most important thing uh and the most important thing is is the fact that when you pull it off and your back's to the wall everything's against you and you still manage to get it done then you feel really good amen to that Right, thank you for your time. Pleasure, Steve. Be happy, never content. If you've enjoyed this uh, this episode, subscribe, follow Gerald on all the platforms he just mentioned. And I really, really, really um, believe that this is going to have so many good sounds, sound bites that people can learn from. And you've been an absolute pleasure talking to Gerald, all right? Mm-hmm.